Hello, I'm Danny Duran, and this is the Infinite Jigsaw podcast, a place for honest conversation, discovery, and with a genuine incentive to improve sense making. In today's episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by Nick Buckley, MBE. Nick came to national attention in June 2020 when he was sacked from the multi-award winning charity which he himself founded, the Mancunian Way, for critiquing the political activist group Black Lives Matter, but then mounted a successful fight back that resulted in his reinstatement. He has spent two decades preventing crime and antisocial behaviour in Manchester and promoting early intervention and personal responsibility. He's a social campaigner on the issues that keep people in poverty and feeling victimised and has widespread experience with youth crime, rough sleeping, knife crime and community engagement. Nick has travelled around the world several times, exploring India, Southeast Asia, Japan, China, Nepal, Canada, the USA, Mexico, Australia, North and South Africa and nearly all of Europe. And it was through this independent travel that he says moulded him into the man that he has become. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Now, before I go on to ask you about your work and for some of your thoughts on other related topics, can you please tell us a bit about your early life growing up in Manchester? Yeah, sure. Um, nothing special. Um, grew up on a South Manchester council estate um, with a single mum, lived with my grandparents, went to a failing school that was closed down the year after I left. The school was that bad, you know, one of our teachers got stabbed 42 times. God. Another teacher got sexually assaulted by 12 lads in the stairwell. Um, it was a proper, those sort of schools don't exist anymore. We're looking at the early 80s here. Mm. Um, I passed my what were then called O-levels, which are now GCSEs, only because I was inherently not stupid. Um, mm. Went to college, did my A-levels, didn't do very well with them because I had no idea how to study. Um, and then decided to apply for university, decided not to go, even though it was completely free at that point. For me, they would have paid my tuition fee, mm. they would have given me a living allowance. It was completely free for me, but I decided I just didn't want to go. And that's when I went travelling for the first time. Um, my childhood was, was a happy childhood, you know. I look back now, it was poverty, but it was happy. I came from a loving family. I had a nice sister. I had friends. I played out. Um, nothing to complain about, really. But what I did miss was having somebody tell me what direction in life I should be going. I had no father mm. figure. Nobody really worked where I lived. Grew up on benefits. And it became normal. And that's what I had to fight against all the way through my teens and 20s. And what part of Manchester was that? It's a area called Longsight in South mm-hmm. Manchester. It's notorious now for drugs, gangs, guns. So the area's got kind of worse in decline over the years from when you grew up there? Oh, absolutely. Um, but so has every area in the inner city across the country. So it's not just the area I grew up, that's deteriorated. Most areas have deteriorated. Yeah, I see that too. Well, it seems like, bearing in mind that you did grow up in a in a quite rough area, really rough area, you, you were lucky enough to have some love in the home. But I'd like to kind of flip that and unfortunately talk about um, hate and hate crime. Now, as I said in the intro, you've had your own battle with what we could term as 
cancel culture and you thankfully you won that battle but let me ask you if you have any thoughts about the battles that people are having on a daily basis in their own lives as a result of a, a kind of rapidly changing culture where offence or rather taking offence has now become a, a social currency of sorts and is is galvanised in law what with the new hate crime law so how careful do you think people need be with what they might perceive as their right to speak freely nowadays really really good question and extremely complicated we could spend the next three hours discussing this yeah. um yeah so this is basically victimhood culture um where we all class ourselves as victims and then we compete against other groups other people about who's the biggest victim and who deserves the most pity um absolutely damaging to individual psyche to neighborhoods and to the country as a whole it's true that we're all victims at some level because none of us are perfect some people are too short too tall not attractive you know low intelligence everybody's different and everybody has their own barriers to overcome and that's called life and um, so we can't we can't concentrate too much on it because it's it, it we can't change things that we cannot change we need to overcome them or get around them or get through them but the best example i can give you is we live in a society where the caring part of our nature has become rampant and you can overcare you can be over compassionate we see it with certain mothers who won't let their children explore who wrap them in cotton wool and bubble wrap, who don't want them to get married and leave the home because it's a nasty world out there. And all that does is damage the child. Mm. And that's what we're doing to our society over too much compassion and too much so-called tolerance. We're damaging society. And what makes me smile is the people who state that they're the most compassionate, and the most tolerant are usually the opposite. They're usually the most incompassionate and the most intolerant because if you don't agree with them, then you're evil. You're a Nazi. Um, they're the ones who need to learn this lesson the most. But it gets us nowhere. Seeing yourself as a victim gets you absolutely nowhere because you then just see who you can blame for your failings in life. And the vast, you know, 99.999% of failings in life are down to you. There may be contributing factors. There may be bad luck involved, but only you can get yourself out of that situation. And feeling sorry for yourself and blaming others does not get you out of that situation. Mm. It, it traps you in that situation. What you need to do is say, these bad things have happened to me, or it's a shame I was born into a family in poverty, or it's a shame I was born on this council estate. But flip that and you say to yourself, it's amazing I was born in the UK. What a piece of luck that was. Because I can tell you now, there's hardly any other country in the world that will give you the opportunities this country will give you. So flip it. You are lucky if you live in this country. And you've got so many opportunities. And this country will give you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. So find out how to see these opportunities and then grasp one of them. Because the second you grasp it, your life will improve almost immediately. That's how you get out of this victimhood culture, by improving your own life. Yeah. 
wise words there. And I'd like to come on to personal responsibility in in a moment. But just sticking on this um, this hate crime law issue and your recent history, if you could just give us a whistle stop tour of what was, uh, because I've listened to you talk about it yeah. uh, a bit of a, a you know a saga. It was it was epic for you. Could you just give us the whistle stop of, of what actually sure. happened to you? Sure. Before I do that, let me just state for the record, there's no such thing as hate crime. doesn't exist. It's a fallacy. So I'm, we should, it should not be in law. There's no such thing as a hate crime. There's only crime. So let's get that straight. And then my whistle stop told her what happened to me. So it was June last year. Um, there'd been violent demonstrations in London for Black Lives Matter. And I decided I, w- I was going to have a look into the group. I'd never really heard of the group before. So I Googled the group, found their website and read what was on their website and didn't like what I found. I didn't like it, the fact it was a Marxist organisation. They wanted to overthrow, overthrow capitalism. They wanted to defund the police and they wanted to destroy the nuclear family. And these things are all stated on their own website, correct? On their website. Um, so not a conspiracy website, not someone else's opinion, but their website. Yeah. You've got to give them credit. They're not hiding any of this. No, they're very upfront. Um, so I read that. Spoke to my family and friends. No one knew any of it. So I decided to write a blog. So I wrote a 700 word blog on what I discovered. Put it on LinkedIn. It got some traction, but then someone copied the link and put it on Twitter. And as we know, Twitter's mental. Hmm. And within days, people were calling for me to be sacked. I was a Nazi. I was a racist. Somebody set up a petition to have me fired from the charity I founded. Um, the board at the charity which I appointed panicked and through a mixture of fear and cowardice they sacked me over email a one-line email and they hoped that would be the end of it for the first week I was a beaten man I was reflecting on what had happened looking at where I was to blame and I fell into the same old thing people fall into which was self-pity I felt sorry for myself I was embarrassed. That was the mm. biggest feeling of embarrassment. Yeah, what, emotion. Uh, yeah, what have I done? What have I done to get myself into this issue? Everyone's laughing at me. I've made a fool of myself. And after a week, I heard a little voice inside saying, what the hell are you doing? This isn't like you. Get up, brush yourself down and start again and fight back. Don't take this off these idiots, meaning the online hate mob. So I decided to mount a fight back. So um, I did an interview with a male on Sunday. Somebody then set a petition up to have me reinstated. That got nearly 19,000 signatures. And the one to get me fired only got 400. I then started doing lots of press. I joined the Free Speech Union, who were amazing. If you like talking, you need to join the Free Speech Union because you don't know when you're going to need them. They got me a solicitor involved. They looked at my case, my contract, and said, clear case of unfair dismissal so we wrote to the board and we said to them you need to stand down and reinstate nick otherwise we're going to sue you it took them 18 hours to capitulate Mm. that's how strong they felt for their decision five weeks before Mm. um they took 18 hours once it affected them personally they went we're leaving so they resigned we appointed a new board and I got my job back. From beginning to end, it took five weeks. Crikey. 
I'm so pleased that you were brave enough and you found the fortitude to be able to to pull yourself up and, and fight back and you got the right results. So I think all power to you. Um, can I just go on to personal responsibility now, Nick? Because yeah. I know that you and I are both strong advocates of personal responsibility and actually the strength of character that a person can build from confronting their behaviours and their, their actions. And I know that you've done lots of work with young people. So do you get the sense, as I do, that for many years, the conversation and, and the presentation of personal responsibility has been either uh, missing or substandard, you might say, between adults and young people, and that maybe adults can't seem to work out how to advise young people from the point of view of being on their side. Because, in fact, this encouragement need not be chastising, uh, but in fact, nurturing. So do you think adults have, have lost the knack or, or even lost the bottle to nurture in this way? Absolutely. And the reason why the modern generation can't do it is because it didn't happen to them either. This has been going on since since the Second World War, since we came out of that. We've had um, a progressive left wing agenda in politics, in school, in the home, in government. And I understand why. And it's done some good things. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's done some good things. But every action has a reaction. And the unintended consequences of some of these policies is to take away agency and personal responsibility away from mm. people. Everybody now looks to the state to solve their problems. And I worked for the state for 10 years. I worked in local government. And with hand on heart, I can tell you, government is incompetent. You want as little government in your life as possible because it's incompetence. That's all you get out of it. And we have generations now in our country, two, three, four generations of adults who have no experience of solving their own problems because the state will always step in and always try to solve your problem badly for you and hardly ever do it. Because poverty seems, no, the accusation of poverty is it's getting worse in this country. Crime's getting worse. Dysfunctionality is getting worse. We've got more and more people who never work, who can't get a job. And it's, where are the improvements in society? Because we keep treating adults as pathetic individuals who can't fix their own lives, who don't know what's best for them. And the state then, and we're doing this to ourselves, by the way. This isn't the state enforcing this on us. Mm. This is us at every general election saying we want more money spent on social services. We want more money spent on unemployment benefit. We want the state to look after this. We want the state to look after that. And we've done it to ourselves. We've infantilised ourselves. But what we should be doing and what we should be saying to the state is, there's certain things you need to do. You need to look after the army. You, look, you need to look after policing. But, but almost everything else, we, we should have a, a say on it. We should have a choice. We should be doing it ourselves. But we're doing the complete opposite. Our education system is not fit for purpose in this country for, for, the most, for most pupils. It does really well for a certain section of people, of pupils. Um, and then we look at our benefit system absolutely appalling our benefit system traps people into poverty we have 11 years at school which trains a lot of people up ready for the benefit system 
And then they leave school at 16, 17, just as unemployable as they were when they came in at five. Then they go on to benefits. And if we don't trust you to pay your rent, oh, we'll pay your rent for you directly. If we don't trust you to do this, we'll take the money out of source and pay those bills for you because we don't trust you to look after your life. And a couple of years of that, you wonder why these individuals cannot look after themselves. And there's a term for this. It's called learned helplessness. Because the state has done so much for certain, to certain individuals, they then don't have the skills or the soft skills to look after themselves. So then social services have to step in and look after those individuals and look after their children. And then these individuals, some of them fall so far down, they end up on the streets, living in sewers, living in cardboard boxes, because they do not know and have not got the skills to look after themselves because the state has infantilised them. And it's a big problem we've got. And I call it tough love. Of course, I mean, you know, I class myself as a compassionate person, mm. but a lot of people wouldn't believe that because of things I say. But I always want the best for the individual. And having the state involved in life isn't the best for that individual. Now, I'm not saying we scrap social services or we get rid of the welfare state, because I remember how poverty used to be 100 years ago. I've read books about it. Of course, we need these institutions. But... The institutions we have at the moment aren't working to the way they should be working. We give people handouts. I want I want us to give them hand ups. I want to live in a society where we will give you as many hand ups as it takes to get you living your own life. But I don't want a society that keeps giving you handouts because when you keep accepting handouts, you're nothing more than a beggar. And we're too good as English people to be beggars. And we don't need to be beggars to the state. That's so well said. And you've kind of answered my question when I asked, have adults lost the knack or even lost the bottle to, to nurture in the way that's necessary to young people and, and to be on their side and give them a hand up, as you say. And you're right in saying that we've infantilised our adult population. So how do we expect them to embody that role of the mentor and the adult if they themselves are infants in many ways? But I would like to talk to you about something that is really important for kids when they're growing up. And I don't think that the adults that we mentioned have, have experienced this sensation much either, uh, especially if we see um, the, the recent political activism and how opinionated and assured um, some people are. And that's the sensation of being wrong, because this is something I've been thinking about for some time. And I'm I'm coming from the feeling of actually an, in, an innate truth that is the only way we learn is by making mistakes you know errors of action mm. errors in speech and etc because relating back to personal responsibility once you confront your power to harm others and yourself through your behaviors then you're faced with a kind of terrible truth which is if you are self-aware enough and have developed a good moral compass then making mistakes that you know our mistakes when you are making them can actually uh, almost imprison you within your own moral structure. And the only way out of this kind of self-made prison is to have the courage to admit that you were wrong, which in and of itself is in fact a great power and a, like a character generator. Um, but unfortunately, we now live in an era where mistakes uh, of behaviour are increasingly not tolerated. 
So how do you think we can encourage people, especially young people, to be mindful of their mistakes and not be afraid to admit when they were wrong? Yeah, another good question. Um, we start by admitting to ourselves that we're flawed and we know nothing because that's the truth. It's easy to parrot what you've heard of somebody else without deeply thinking about what you believe and why you believe it and why you've come to that conclusion. Mm. We make mistakes all the time and that's the only way to learn is you do something, it doesn't work out the way you thought it would and you've learned from that making mistakes only becomes a problem when you keep repeating the same mistake yeah because you don't have the ability to learn and sometimes you repeat the same mistake because the state steps in and makes sure you don't suffer for that mistake so therefore there's no lesson to be learned hence why some of the people we work on the streets because they weren't allowed to suffer for the bad decision they made a decade ago mm. or last week. When we talk about cancel culture and making mistakes, you're right where there is no forgiveness anymore now. So you can say the wrong word and that word was perfectly acceptable two months ago, mm. but things have moved on now and now that word isn't acceptable. And now you're punished and you're cancelled or someone will look in your history, a tweet of an article you wrote from 20 years ago and you talked about a subject that was perfectly acceptable and the perfectly normal thing to discuss and to have those opinions 20 years ago but now things have changed so much now your class is a racist or a bigot because something that was acceptable 20 years ago mm. that needs to stop and the reason why we have this at the moment is because it's not because people really believe you're a racist or a bigot it's because it's a new weapon to scare people with. So the radical left, who are basically Marxists and revolutionaryists, who want to overthrow the Western world and build a utopia that doesn't exist and will never exist, mm -hmm. this is their new weapon. And their new weapon is, if we can scare you enough, you'll stop talking. And if you stop talking, it means you're gonna stop communicating. And if you stop communicating, it means you won't have new ideas and you won't discuss new ideas. And if you don't discuss new ideas, you're more likely to accept our idea of the world. And then the revolution can begin, my, my, my brother, my comrade. It's, this, is, this is a plan for revolution. And we've seen socialism, communism, Marxism in action for the last hundred years. It ends in genocide. And it doesn't matter that we'll do it better now. Well, you won't do it better because on paper, Marxism is a wonderful thing on paper. I really understand it. I get it. But what Marx never understood is to achieve it, you have to involve humans. Hmm. And humans are flawed. We're nasty. We can be evil. We're selfish. We're violent. So once you include humans into the Marxist project, it always ends up with genocide. Yeah, it's like the the people you just described, the the nasty people, the people with evil, evil inclinations, they're going to find their niche in any society, uh, in the society that we've built with our with our laws and our common laws and our criminal laws. We try to manage them and contain them in that way, but the the, the communist and the, and the Marxist structure 
puts them in a completely different niche. And we all know through uh, examples of history where that leads. Absolutely. Uh, and that's why we have the, you know, the structure, you know, law structure we have in this country, because we used to have mob rule, which meant mm. you could be burned at a stake for being accused of being a witch. Um, you know, we've had this before, but we've developed laws and systems to make sure that everybody's treated equally. And just because you, you because you offend a certain group doesn't mean you need to be punished. But council culture is all about let's bypass due process and the rule of law. And let's us as this group who think we are morally superior, let us be the judge and the juror for you right now. And it's wrong. Yeah, it is wrong. And we're, we're talking here about the sensation of being wrong. And, uh, and I try to train myself to always be aware that pretty much most of the thought processes I have are faulty and incorrect in some way. So I can sort of go through a, a lifetime of constant upgrade, if mm. you will. You know, I, this is what I try to do. It's very, very difficult to do, but I, I do my best. But there are some things that we can be confident that are just wrong because we have examples from history mm. you know when um, these ideological experiments have been and scenarios have been run before um, so I, I'm not um, embarrassed um, to say that I think that the the Marxist and the communist structure when implemented as you say by humans just doesn't work and it not only doesn't work but it takes us into dark areas um, do you think that also talking about cancel culture and the sensation of being wrong, uh, that we have now many, many people, that, prominent people that have their past history dug up um, and it's used to, as a cudgel to, to bash them with. Do you think that that can only get worse with the advent of social media, whereby people's misdemeanours and, and um, digressions are immortalised forevermore? Um, to a certain extent, but I'm not pessimistic on this note. First of all, if you're a public figure or you want to be a public figure, the first thing you need to do is delete all your old social media accounts and you mm -hmm. need to start again. That's what you need to do because that, that'll keep you safe. Um, but going forward, as a nation, we're becoming sick and tired of this and it doesn't work as easy as it used to work a year ago. Um, being called racist now hardly means anything. Mm. Being called a Nazi hardly means anything anymore now because it's it's been so overused. Dragging something up from 20 years ago isn't guaranteed to destroy you anymore. And the more we do this, the less impact it has. So I'm maybe optimistic on this point. Um, over the last year, there has been a big sea change in the mind of the public in the UK because it's been brought to national attention now. Up to a year ago, nobody knew what was going on. All this was maybe, on, if you weren't online, you didn't know any of this was going on at all. But Black Lives Matter did us a huge favour last year. They brought all this craziness to national attention. Um, mm. But going back to the original question, these cancellations don't mean as much. More and more people now are ignoring it, and more and more people are just laughing at it. Um, mm. Hence what I say now, I mean, I I challenge this on a daily basis now and nobody ever pushes back against me. Well, last year there was a national outcry 
from social justice for years. But now I can say whatever I want about Black Lives Matter now. Nobody pushes back mm. because it's not a sacred cow anymore now. And that's what we need to get to with lots of these things. Look at Stonewall. Stonewall have basically killed themselves. They've committed suicide. A year ago, Stonewall were untouchable. And now almost, you know, loads and loads of large organisations and the government are dropping Stonewall on a daily basis. They'll be bankrupt this time next year. Um, How did they commit this suicide, do you think? By going full woke into trans ideology. Um, So not because they support trans people, because, of course, somebody should support the trans movement and trans people. Mm. I can imagine it's a difficult life being trans Mm. if if you've got gender dysphoria. So I try not to use the word trans anymore now because trans now just means blue haired nutcases on LinkedIn and TikTok. But gender dysphoria is a medical condition of somebody who doesn't feel comfortable in their body because they feel they've got the wrong sex. So they are extremely unhappy, depressed. Uh, They feel disgusted. Those people, it's a mental health illness. These people need help and support. It might be, it might be trans, it might be medical surgery. It might be psychiatrist. I don't know what the answer is. I've not looked into it, but whatever the answer is, these people need help and support. But the word trans now doesn't mean people with gender dysphoria. It now means narcissist, mentally ill people, um, and it's become a subculture, a bit like the punks in the 70s. We look different, we're rebellious, we're cool, we're strange looking. And that's what trans means now. So because Stonewall have gone into this with a trans woman is a woman. Well, no, a trans woman isn't a woman. A trans woman is a trans woman. But they've gone full woke and full lunatic into this. And it worked for a couple of years. But all of a sudden, you can't fool everybody all the time. And now the backlash is coming and Stonewall are losing all their support now. And rightly so. Yeah, that's really interesting. You being at the forefront of this culture war, if you will, I can really get the sense that you can take the temperature quite well and you you really are up to speed with what's going on and which battles are being raged and, you know, who's losing and who's winning. And um, we're speaking here about a confused society. So I'd like to, to get your thoughts on political activism and ideology, because given your experience with ideological politics and virtue signaling, um, I'd like to ask you something about motivation and specifically, actually, the awareness of, of one's true motivations, because we seem to be inundated with highly political and highly socially motivated people whose actions actually, they seem to manifest as wholly detrimental to a, to a peaceful future. But through my series, uh, The Wonder of Wonderful Faith, where I've been speaking with religious leaders, um, such as Reverend Tom and Dr. Reverend Jamie from the Irreverent podcast and Dr. Andrew Pinson, who's um, theology director at Oxford. W- one of the topics we've discussed is the Christian maxim of father, they know not what they do. So, Nick, do you get the sense that these highly motivated people whose actions are destructive, actually, to society, even recognise 
that their decisions and actions are firstly stitched in, into an ideology and not a result of any critical thought, and secondly, are generating a profoundly confused society. First part of the question, do they know what they're doing? No, they don't. They fully buy into this. And they buy into this for several reasons. The first reason is we all need purpose in life. And purpose in life we used to gain from family, from the church, um, from community. But all that's gone. So now we have people who have who feel they have no purpose in life, mm. nothing greater than themselves. And then they see and hear about social justice and they think, wow, if I get involved in this, I'm just like Mandela. I'm just like Gandhi. Hmm. I'm just like Dr. King. I could be the new superhero of my age. People could write books about me from 50 years. They could write, do films about me, statues about me, because I am so amazing and so compassionate and so tolerant of my fellow man. I want a bit of that. Thank you very much. So they get into it for the wrong reasons. They get into it because they're selfish, they're narcissist, they're lost, they're confused, and they have an over-grandizement of their of their self mm. um that's why we have this because if they were sensible internally thinking people they would know that a lot of their actions are the complete opposite of what they say they are you know the new hashtag punch a turf you know how how can you condone physical violence mm. how can you know antifa who are fighting who so-called anti-fascists are beating the hell out of people on the streets and it's like none of this is compassionate um so that's the first part of it and the second part really is about it goes back to purpose in life again what else have i got to be proud of in my life and if the, if the answer is nothing then you can be groomed into this. I see it on the streets all the time with sexual grooming, especially with girls. Um, they've got low self-esteem. Some older boys or an older man makes them feel better about themselves, tells them they're beautiful, um, buys them stuff. They feel special, feel like a princess. Well, that girl now is, is right to be groomed and sexually abused. Mm. Same with the boys on the streets local gangsters, local drug dealers, buy them a McDonald's, give them a bit of free weed, maybe buy them a pair of new sneakers or trainers of a coat. And they're being told, you can earn this money yourself. They're being groomed into a lifestyle of criminality. We're all susceptible to this. Um, that's a huge part of the problem that we're not offering, especially young people, an alternative it's be a social justice warrior or you're part of the problem and young people are crying out for an alternative hence why jordan peterson is so popular mm. uh, because he's giving young people especially young men an alternative and he's saying the alternative is you your personal responsibility what are you going to do to improve your life and change the world why aren't you 
cleaning your own bedroom. You're saying you're going to improve the world. You can't even keep your room tidy. What are you doing about your family? If you've got people struggling in your family, you should be looking after them. Why are you worried about people in Africa when you can't even look after your cousin? Hmm. And it's it's that message. And young people, I mean, I spent two decades talking to young people about this. And they get it and they get it so quickly. And they're up for this. They're up for this tough love because deep down inside, they know it's the right thing. Yeah, They really do. It's easier to convince a young person than an adult. An adult at some level in their life then has been brainwashed into this. A young person still understands that only they can improve their lives, that only they can influence what happens around them because they see it on a daily basis. They do. That's so true because I remember being a young person myself and being at school and you never wanted to be that kid that was able to run feral and run free and do exactly what they wanted, which usually resulted getting into trouble. You had a, a moment of, of begrudging thanks for your parents being so kind of on you. If, if a parent is there and doing the best by you and restricting your potential to do harm to yourself and others, intrinsically, a young person does understand that. It's really clever also how you connected those dots between the options that young people have. It's either um, social justice warrior or part of the problem. But there mm. is, as you say, other options that are being presented just recently with Jordan Peterson. And we're talking about people here with poor leadership. So as a leader yourself, I wonder if you'd agree that to lead effectively and with good results, you need first to have a kind of destination to which you can guide people towards. And then you also need an ethical framework. So those who you are leading or or actually who you're asking to follow you can feel safe in, in the moral direction. Because it seems that right from the top of current Western governments, leadership lacks the uh, surety of a fixed destination. And, and moreover, it seems to be surfing a wave of, of like a rudderless and fickle society. So what are your thoughts where better and more directionally clear leaders can be found and how do we encourage these people to put themselves forward yeah the first thing with leadership is to be a leader you have to lead by example leaders don't tell people what to do leaders show people what to do there's a huge difference mm -hmm. now one of the problems we have in our society is we have far too many politicians and not enough states people and the difference between the two is a politician is a career. A statesperson is doing their best to improve the country they love. Now, I can give you two examples of statespeople, complete opposites. The first one is Margaret Thatcher. She said to the country, this is, this is my vision. This is where I'm going to take the country. This is what I'm going to do. Some of it will be very unpopular. Some of it will be very painful, but the destination is where we need to go. And if you don't like any of this, don't vote for me. Mm. That's a statesperson. The only other statesperson we've had since then, really, has been Jeremy Corbyn, who I wouldn't vote for, who I disagree on virtually everything. But Jeremy Corbyn was a statesperson because he said, this is my vision for the country. 
This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to fund. These are the projects. This is what we're not going to do. And if you don't like it, then don't vote for me. Everybody in between has been a politician where they've said to each other in boardrooms, in 10 Downing Street, what can we get away with? What can we do that won't upset the people too much? Let's do a focus group on these policies. Oh, they're not popular. Let's put them in the bin. But this one was very popular. Oh, let, let's run. What that one's about? It doesn't matter what it's about. If it's popular, let's run with it. They're politicians. They only care about the next election so they can be re-elected into their position. We need less people like that. And we need more people with conviction, regardless if you agree with those convictions or not. You, I want people who have conviction who say, this is my vision for the country. And if you agree with me, come on a journey with me because we can get to the promised land together. And we're missing all of that. Yeah, we are. And there's a really interesting distinction with, with Thatcher and Corbyn, and that rings true. And so where do you think we might find these conviction leaders with good ideas emerging? Where should we look, do you think? I'm not sure where they are. Um, they may not even exist. I think what we need to do to develop people to maybe become states people is we need to start talking about and we need to start avoiding cowardice because I believe that's the big problem. The white elephant in the room mm. is cowardice. We are we're all susceptible to cowardice, you know, me me included. Um, but we need to start avoiding it and we need to start highlighting it when we see it and learning how not to be a coward. Now, not being a coward is not the same as being a hero because a hero will do the right thing knowing there's going to be a backlash and something negative towards them. That's a hero. They don't mm. put themselves first. A, cow so a coward, sorry, to avoid cowardice just means... I'm going to avoid doing this, which I know is harmful. Mm. I don't have to shout about it. No one, no one might even know. That's fine. And that's what we need to get to. And I've just wrote a book about all of this. It's called Lessons in Courage. And it really is about how, how you as an individual need to stop doing those little things that make everything worse, such as if you've got voluntary training at work about white privilege, well, don't attend. Mm. If you've got to go or you lose your job, then of course you've got to go. Don't lose your job over something so tiny. But don't put your pronouns in your email. You know, don't post things about Black Lives Matter when you don't believe in it. Um, don't start using some of these new phrases and crazy words so you can fit in such as gender. Don't use the word gender. The word is sex, not gender. And there's all these little battles you can have in your everyday life that aren't going to lose your job. That's not going to destroy your family. But you doing those little things will give people, other people a bit more courage for them to do those little things. And all that little bits of courage all adds up because we're the silent majority. And what we need to do is stop being so bloody silent. And we need to speak out a little bit more, not in a crazy way, but we need to get away from thinking someone else is going to solve all these social issues because I'm too scared to say anything. If you're too scared to say anything, then you're part of the problem. That's so well said. Uh, and I'm really pleased that you can offer some advice um, for people on how to 
address these smaller battles that they're faced with in their day-to-day lives. Yeah. And the best example um, I can give you, the best, when yeah. people ask me this now, the thing, the one lesson I give everybody is start using the word no. It's a powerful word. I want you to attend this um, unconscious bias training. No. Don't explain yourself. What What do you mean by no? I mean, no. I want... I want you to start using the word, you know, gender. No, I want you to start saying that trans women are women. No, start. It's a very powerful word that we have and we need to start using it. Yeah. um, Penultimately, I want to ask you something about the police and uh, and consent. And the word no is, I think, wrapped up in our modern experience of dealing with the police i mean the the pelian principle of an ethical police force was modeled around the idea that police officers are regarded as citizens in uniform right and they exercise their powers to police their fellow citizens with the implicit consent of those fellow citizens now i think it's only fair to caveat that the following conversation by stating that i'm strongly in favour of a robustly reactive police force whereby society is protected from those who wish to harm, steal and oppress. But what I'm strongly not in favour of is a politically subservient police force that can be used as a, a paramilitary government agency. You know, modern times, darkest hours have all been accompanied by such a Uh, a misdirection of police use and I'm not the only one who fears that our own Met and constabularies are undergoing a kind of remould which directs their activities ever more toward uh, the whim of the state and away from what is actually the miracle of the Pelian tradition of citizen policing. So what with your experience Nick with the police recently and over the years what do you see as the state of policing now and what does the worst and the best direction it could take look like? Sure Um, some of my experience just so you know where I'm coming from I spent years based in police stations when I worked for the council Um, I have trained police officers I used to use their computer systems I used to um, create plans of what police officers needed to do in their communities. Um, I've done a lot of work with the police, so I do understand British policing quite well. Um, the police have changed dramatically over the last couple of decades. You could almost accuse them, them now of socially engineering the populace, um, mm. not necessarily enforcing criminal law, but tweaking and pushing the public to believe certain things, to act in certain ways. Why is it the police's job to tell me how I should act if I've broken no law? It's absolutely ridiculous. Mm. Um, They've been completely taken over. The top levels of the policing in the UK have been taken over by this woke lunacy. And most of them don't believe in it. Even the people at the top of the police forces, most of them don't believe in any of this. It is just a way to be promoted. Because to, to be promoted in the police force, when you're being interviewed for that promotion, the police have got into a habit of asking you what 
what changes can you bring to the force? And if you talk about race, LBGT, any of this woke nonsense, then that's a big gold star and you get promoted. So the promoted people who understand the game that's being played. Um, but honestly, hardly any of them believe in it. They all know it's rubbish, but mm-hmm. it's promotion and that's what you do in your career. Um, they've moved away from the old fashioned policing um, of being crime catchers. And what I would like to see, it's gone too far now. So what I'd like to see is a Royal Commission. I'd like to see a Royal Commission into policing in the UK, where we work out what is our modern police force for. We need to engage the public in this discussion um, and we need to set out new standards for the police. Um, so, So the police themselves know what's expected of them. And part of the problem is there's been far too much political interference. I was quite shocked 20 years years ago when I started working with the police about how much interference there is, even on a local level. You know, local councillors can phone up a local inspector and tell him what he needs to do Mm. and where the patrol should go and what's important. And to a certain extent, he has to take stock of that and probably do some of it. and it's like, well, what does a councillor know about catching burglars? What does a councillor or an MP know about catching rapists? They know nothing. So there's too much political interference. And again, if you want promotion, you need your political, local p- politicians on board to get you promoted. So it all feeds into itself. But the vast majority of police officers on the ground um, disagree with all of this. They join the police to be thief catchers and to make neighbourhoods better and they're frustrated and they're walking a tightrope of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, stopping the wrong person or stopping the right person and being accused of being racist. Um, Who would want to be a a police officer today? Mm. Um, I'm not sure. And then we also have to look at this big diversity drive in the police um, and how this has contributed to the issue. I don't want to stop women joining the police force. But let's be honest. If you're a gang of bank robbers coming out of a bank or you're some drug dealers running out of a house and there's six burly coppers waiting for you or the six five foot two women police officers waiting for you, which one which one's going to deter you? Which one's going to have the biggest success of catching those criminals? But we live in a time now where... Women are just like men. Women are the strongest men. Women can be just as good police officers. In certain ex- examples, yes, they can be, but not in all situations. Um, we're also going down the, the equity route of black and Asian police officers. And I've spoken to senior police officers who tell me that they willingly have taken on black and brown officers who they knew wasn't up to the job, but have taken them on because we've got quotas to fill. And we have to make sure we take some of these people of colour on. So we'll take less able officers if they're black. And I've got loads of it. I've got examples that I could give you that I've got personal experience in of this. That's not good for the police force either, because those officers then fail. Then they claim racism. But the, but the answer really was, you weren't good enough for the job in the first place. Mm. 
But then when you fail, everyone now goes, oh, black officer's been fired, oh, racism. Well, it wasn't racism. He was just no good for the job and never should have been taken on in the first place. And that's what we need to get away with with the police because the police over decades have been losing the confidence of the public for many reasons. But the last few years, it's definitely accelerated. Absolutely. Hardly anyone now has respect for the police. We see them as interfering in politics. We see the way they react to different demonstrations. We see how they treated Black Lives Matter with kid gloves, but then how they treated uh, the anti-vaccine protesters or the anti-lockdown protesters. We see how they're treating um, Insulate Britain. No, we had one officer, a senior officer, saying, are you all OK? Do you want a cushion? If any is a distress, just shout out and let us know. We had a police officer in Birmingham yesterday, a sergeant, saying to the protesters, "Rightio, I'm going to let you go on the road one more time and block traffic, but after that, I want you all to leave. You've got 10 more minutes. And it's like, the police are saying, you've got 10 more minutes, I'll let you go on the road one more time. Is this your children you're sending to bed watching cartoons? Drag them off the road, mate. That's what you need to be doing. But if you fit a certain ideology, the police will treat you better. And that is doing so much damage to the populace now because we see a two-tier policing system. That needs to stop. And it's habit-forming, isn't it, Nick? Because yes. if the police can can um, turn around one day and say just another 10 minutes on the road then why shouldn't they turn around to a looter and say just another trip inside the electrical store grab one more telly and then you're done yeah absolutely you know it's it's habit forming and it's a bad habit but uh, i didn't know you had so much contact and so much experience with the police so um, notwithstanding the diversity quotas which uh, to my mind i think are technically uh, a bigoted it's a bigoted scheme to have diversity quotas but notwithstanding it's, that it's racist that's it, it is, what it is it's yeah, racist it's racist but do you think that the modern policing now attracts a different personality through the door than it used to 20 years ago or 10 years ago yeah i'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing i think the move to graduates only will be a bad thing because what we what we need less of is people who have been brainwashed into an ideology at university, then all entering the police. That would be disastrous. Mm. Um, but policing, I mean, policing's changed. Policing changes every decade because things change. The world's changed. So policing has changed. The people who joined policing has changed. You know, 50 years ago, we would have people who joined the police uh, because they liked rough and tumble. They wanted to get their hands dirty. They wanted to have a scrap with the burglars. They wanted to get the baseball bat out of the car and go give some paedophile a good hiding. But we've moved away from that. No, that wasn't policing. That was that tended to be vigilante mm. from a person in the uniform. So, don't, so we need to be careful. We don't look at the police in the past going, they were perfect. They weren't perfect. And there was corruption. There was brutality. And they brought the law themselves. So as we've got, as generations have gone by, we've we have got a better police force. That's police force. That's more accountable. That understands the law better and does their job better. Now that doesn't mean it's perfect because 
we've we've got rid of some historic problems, but we took our eye off the ball and then we started creating some new modern problems mm. and they're the ones we need to concentrate on now. Yeah. Well, we've covered some ground that is not easy to talk about, but I'd like to finish by asking you a question that will give you the opportunity to sort of point towards the happier parts of life and your travels. So uh, drawing from your life experience and, and your widespread travels across the world, what do you think is the one thing that gives people the most joy? Oh, that's easy. One word, family. Nice. Everything comes back to family. And I say to people all the time, if you've not got a family, get one. And if you've got one, work harder at it, because that is the only long term joy you're going to get throughout your life. There may be ups and downs. There may be other things that give you joys, football or watching movies. It doesn't matter. But family is what gives you the ultimate joy. It is the only reason you're alive. Your genetics have programmed you to reproduce, to look after your siblings, to look after your extended family. This is all programmed within you over millions of years. You cannot fight this programming. If you try to fight it, it will manifest itself as unhappiness and depression and illness. Accept it and do better at it. Again, wise words. I've really enjoyed talking with you, Nick. Um, Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Where can we find out about you, your work and your book online? Yeah, so I'm on all the social media platforms. If you search for me, all one word, Nick Buckley MBE, I'm on everywhere. And my book can be pre-ordered now. It comes out in a few weeks time, end of the month. It's called Lessons in Courage. And it really is about how you as an individual can do your bit to improve society. And you don't have to be Martin Luther King. You don't have to be Gandhi. You can all these little private battles you can have. And it really is about how to avoid becoming a coward, avoid cowardice. Don't be a superhero. Just avoid being a coward. And that's good enough. Top stuff. This is it's the sort of book that I'll be reading and the one that I will be passing on to my son, my, my teenage son. Well, that's it for another episode of the infinite jigsaw podcast until next time thank you listeners for listening and please do get in touch via comment or email and thank you again to my guest today uh, cheers nick it's good to speak to you you're welcome and thank you for the opportunity cheers Ta-ra.